history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to artifacts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. We absolutely love the support we've been receiving. Just a shout out to uh, my friend, Nathaniel. Uh, He's been listening to every episode, which is amazing. Uh, So thank you for that. He's probably chuckling right now as he hears this. Um, Today, we have uh, a pretty unique uh, and exciting episode Uh, We just listened to and watched the debate that Stephanie Gray Connors had with Dr. Peter Singer, a professor in philosophy, probably one of the most notable professors. And uh, what we want to do, and when I say we, I haven't even introduced who else is on the program, so do forgive me for that. Uh, But we want to talk about this debate and, uh, and share some of our reflections and responses to some of the things that have been said. But without further ado, I do apologize once again, I have on the program with me, Cameron Cote. Good to see you, sir. Good to be back. I thought I was going to get the day off for a moment there uh, when you just launched into it, but but I'm back. I'm happy to be here. And I find this super interesting that we're going to we're gonna kind of break down this debate between Stephanie Gray Connors and Dr. Peter Singer, because it was almost an identical debate that first got me involved with CCBR, um, what would have been like 11 years ago? Um, almost exactly 11 years ago, uh, Stephanie came to my university, University of Victoria, and debated Dr. Ike Kluga, um, who's a philosophy professor who actually had a very similar argument to Dr. Peter Singer. And Stephanie used almost an identical argument to demonstrate the pro-life position and to get um, a, a young whippersnapper like me first involved in the pro-life movement. So it's super interesting to be able to kind of analyze this debate um, considering my own kind of introduction to the pro-life movement. Yeah, that's great. And and with us today, we have none other than the Blaze Conspiracy, Blaze Elaine, uh, who is the Eastern Outreach Director in Toronto, uh, works for CCBR. We uh, We actually recorded an episode with him prior to this one, but that is going to come out after this one. So uh, if you guys could all wait for that episode, we will have uh, a little bit deeper introductions. But Blaze is on the episode today, not just to, you know, we're not going to have a, a question and answer session, uh, but we do want to have a conversation in response to uh, the, the debate that happened. Blaze, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd say thanks for being back, but I guess it's the first time that the listeners will be hearing it. But I, I remember Stephanie at the University of Toronto back in 2011 debating the chair of the philosophy department, Professor Donald Ainsley as well. So this is also uh, not the first debate that I've seen Stephanie had, and it's always a pleasure to hear her debate, and I'm excited to uh, to talk about this one. Yeah, it, it is a pleasure to hear her debate. And one of the things that I find so exciting about this one is 
Like, she's debating Dr. Peter Singer, extremely notable in the world of philosophy and uh, perhaps one of the biggest debate, debate opponents that she has had up to date. And uh, one of the, the guys, I mean, she's been using his philosophy in presentations around the world for the last decade, uh, showing, you know, this is what he believes and, and this is how we can refute that or rebut that. So she's been uh, training people using the, the words of Peter Singer, but now she had the opportunity to sit down with him virtually and uh, and have that conversation. So let's uh, let's dive in. I think before we start, let's just share what the goal is um, of this this episode. We're not here just to pick apart uh, one side or another. But Cam, could you could you uh, share with us a little bit why we want to do an episode like this? I think an episode like this makes a ton of sense. Not only because I'm sure many of you may have probably heard about this debate coming up. We we certainly shared all about it on the Pro Life Guys podcast. Um, social media platforms and I know CCBR was posting on a lot of other pro-life groups. And so you're probably familiar with it, even if you didn't tune into it. Um, but I, I think it's important to kind of analyze it, not only because there's so many nuggets that we can take out of the debate, not, not only so many different points and factors that we can draw from, from Stephanie Gray Connors's um, excellent delivery. She's one of the most eloquent speakers I've ever heard. I think there's a lot of stuff that we can really benefit from learning from her and her delivery on different points. But I think that there's also a valuable distinction that we should be making as well in understanding the, the role of the debate versus the personal interaction. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but in, in some ways, the goal of Stephanie's conversation with um, Dr. Peter Singer wasn't necessarily to change Dr. Peter Singer's mind on the issue of abortion. I'm sure that she would have been incredibly pleased if, if she had been able to do that. Obviously, that is a, a very high second priority. And yet, I, I think it'd be fair to say that her number one priority was the listeners, that the, the people in the audience who maybe they were actively supporting abortion, maybe actively supporting the pro-life position, but most likely those in what we call the mushy middle. She was trying to engage them with some intellectual points to really draw them towards the pro-life worldview. And I think that it's important in some ways to understand the points that she was making and draw some distinctions between how we can apply similar points to a conversation that you're having, whether at a CCBR choice gene display, whether on a doorstep while you're out door knocking, whether just in a conversation you're having with a friend or family member, how you can translate some of her points that into a way that may be a little bit more compelling in a one-on-one -on -one interaction where your primary goal is the person that you're, you're looking into the eyes of and not necessarily an audience that you're trying to sway through your, your um, delivery and cross-examination and that sort of thing. Um, Two other like random asides that I want to make note of right away. I'm, I'm sure that we're all thinking them. Like, first of all, huge congratulations to Stephanie Gray Connors. First of all, for her wedding. Um, she got married this summer, I believe, uh, which is super exciting. I have known Stephanie for a really long time. Huge congratulations to her. And the fact that she just drops a bomb in the middle of a debate announcing that she is currently a mother. She is pregnant. And that's super exciting. And so I'm sure that's a massive power flex. I'm sure that she's been um dreaming of that moment ever since she started debating to be able to drop that bomb on on her debate opponent to just add that um extra component to the debate but huge congratulations to to her and also a shout out of appreciation to the the harvard students for life um group for putting that together i as somebody who's helped organize debates in the past 
it can be an absolute nightmare trying to get somebody to commit to doing the debate and all the technology. I think they did a wonderful job. Um, and so that, that's my quick tangent. But yeah, that, that's why I think it's important for us to analyze it, because I'm sure Many people are familiar with it. Many people can learn from Stephanie's delivery. Many people can learn, I think, as well from, from Peter Singer's um, position and how we approach, analyze, and respond to it. And then also just how we can translate some of the points that she made into conversational tools um, for our application in a one-on-one -on -one capacity. Shout out as well to the Massachusetts Citizens for Life. They were also... Uh a big part of that debate. It was uh, moderated and, and hosted by uh, Harvard Right to Life, but Massachusetts Citizens for Life certainly had uh, a big role to play in that as well. Um, as we as we start this conversation, uh, gentlemen, let's let's uh, look a little bit at the opening statements uh, that both Stephanie Gray Connors and Dr. Peter Singer made, and some of the I guess the foundation upon which their position rests. Uh, Stephanie obviously is very pro-life, and Peter Singer, you know, as as was a debate, certainly uh, advocated that abortion should not be something that is morally or ethically wrong. Uh, but what were some of the foundations, some of the presuppositions that were made by either Stephanie or or Peter Blaze? Yeah. So for uh, for Peter Singer's view. So he, he's famous for, for, for writing a book, Animal Liberation, but people often associate it with him, him with animal rights. He doesn't believe in animal rights. He doesn't believe in human rights. He doesn't believe that rights are a thing when it comes to morality. Rather, his fundamental belief that he put on the table in his opening statement is that like moral status, what matters morally is whether or not you have the ability to feel pleasure or pain, the ability to feel, to experience that sentience and uh you know consciousness like like the ability to have desires so and 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 he points out you know it doesn't matter what species you are but he believes that it's those things the ability to feel pleasure uh, pleasure or pain or to have consciousness and desires that that's what matters morally and and i think that's an important distinction blaze and and i thank you for doing that because often i i've heard a bunch of his quotes that that say oh well a a newborn infant is less capable than a, a piglet or a puppy or something like that therefore how can we even consider that they have the same moral standing it's not that he he values puppies or piglets more than humans i think you, you hit it on the head that, that he's valuing a more of a trait i guess or like a characteristic um than any species in particular it's it's not a he's not going to be the one defending all members of endangered species necessarily he's going to be defending the members of that species that have a particularly valuable in his eyes kind of trait i think so i, I think that's a really good distinction there for stephanie gray i, I think that she makes um, her her point is arguably based, hopefully, on the, on the same foundation that that Peter and I and and so many other guests have been talking about since the beginning of this show. The fact that human life begins at fertilization and that human rights must begin when the human's life begins. I think she made a very very good and compelling case on um, the composition and behavior of that one cell zygote from the moment of fertilization, the, the point of sperm egg fusion onwards. And, and I think that she appealed as well to more than just the, the intellectual scientific kind of data. I thought that she was just pulling out the concept of personhood as a, um, a red carpet to announce her, her pregnancy and her motherhood. But I think that she, she did it in, in some ways to convey the fact that, the vast majority of people 
deep down, whether our conscience or however we want to characterize it, know that parents should look after their kids and not harm their kids. And so I think that she did a good job of kind of something that I, I talk about a lot in, in presentations that I give to much smaller audiences and much less prolific um, <laughs> um, speaking events of, you know, the we we need to engage the whole person, the, the intellectual, the emotional, the entire person. I think that, that that's kind of what she was attempting to do with that kind of parenthood thing that, that I, I almost never bring up in, in conversation. I hadn't really thought of that before at all. I think the foundation of the pro-life argument and what she was arguing was the humanity of the preborn and the fact that human rights are not dependent on our age or our ability, but rather dependent on our humanity, our inherent capacity. Yeah. And um, on the science, you know, Stephanie laid out the science of when life begins in her introduction. Notably, Peter Singer did not dispute that at all. So for Peter Singer's right. view, he uh, totally agreed with Stephanie that we're dealing with a biological human being from the point of fertilization. The biology, the science was not in play in debate. That was accepted by both sides. Yeah, and that's interesting because that's often something that's denied um, when we're talking to people on the streets. But Peter Singer is straight up. He said, yep, they are, uh, you know, homo sapien. Um, and, and granted, you know, that's the same thing as a human being. So you know, th there was no discussion on whether we were talking about a human being or not, but what sort of status uh, that human being should have or what we should be allowed to do to that human. And I found it interesting as well that both of them brought up um, in various different ways the role of parenthood. Uh, as you mentioned, Cam, Stephanie uh, outlined that the role of a parent should be to care for her young human child, her young human offspring, and not to kill them. And one of the things that, that Peter Singer said uh, a little bit later on in the debate is that well? What it means to be a loving parent is to to bring your child up into you know a loving home where they're where they are able to thrive and have a full and uh, and wonderful life. And he gave examples of of well, he didn't really give examples. He just mentioned that he knows people who had an abortion because they weren't able to provide a good standard of life for their child um, at at that particular stage. Became pregnant later and and loved all their children after that. So a very different understanding. Uh, of parenthood as well, um, you know, considering that the human child is actually a human child. Yeah, and and that was kind of the the tug of war back and forth that that, that um, Stephanie was definitely trying to push him on about. I think she did such an incredible job with, especially during the the cross examination. I'm sure that we're going to walk through the different stages as we go, but I think that in one of, one of the really neat things of of the way the debate was laid out and and obviously this kind of followed the format of a lot of formal debates though many of our our listeners may not have listened to a ton of formal debates this idea of an an opening kind of statement and then rebuttals and then cross examination and then final rebuttals or statements as it were before q and a i think that by laying out the position stephanie did a, a great job of really demonstrating the fact that this this view is pretty radical this, this view is something that a lot of people are going to have a really difficult time swallowing. And that's what happens when you have consistent debates. And one thing that, that jumps to my mind, um, I don't know if it came to you guys, but I, I think of how we often um, approach this back before we had the human plus X. We're going to talk about human plus X, I'm sure, in a little bit, talking about ableism and ageism. But Peter Singer bringing out the idea of of this consciousness ability to feel pain we often when we do encounter people on the street i remember uh, when i first got involved with ccbr the amount of time we spent talking about sled size level of development environment degree of dependency 
and how once we demonstrated the humanity of the preborn, we would talk to people all the time. Uh, maybe maybe not quite so much anymore, but we, we would talk to people all the time who, who would admit, yeah, sure, it's, it's a human, but it's not a human being. It's not a human person making this dis distinction between biological member of the species and, and a meaningful member of our society or community, that sort of thing, and how for a long time we, we talked about size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, and these things that are different between born humans and pre-born humans, but are also different between different born humans and how there, there's a sliding scale for all of these different things when it comes to how large we are and whether our, our human rights should be based on our size or how developed maybe maybe different degrees of development, whether it's, as Peter Singer had said, the, the pain, conscious awareness, that kind of thing, our environment or a degree of dependency. And that, that just jumped out to me as something that I've heard time and time again. And we used to teach everyone to focus on the sled before we started talking about the human plus X. You get um, you're not a human with human rights just as a human. You have to be able to do something or be something else. And I, I'd be curious, is, is that something that kind of jumped out to you guys as well on the distinction that Peter Singer was making that, that sled? I, I don't even remember who the first person was that came up with that, but I, I think of Scott Glusendorf and Greg Kokel touching on that. That certainly sprang to my mind. Yeah, I think Stephanie did a good job of bringing that human plus X argument in to show, as moral philosopher Christopher Kayser puts it, Every other time throughout history that we've done that, to say that like to be um, a human being is not good enough to get your human rights, we've looked back on it as a catastrophic moral mistake, right? So Stephanie was pointing that out um, with the human plus X distinctions. Like, like she said, uh, I believe she said in the debate, you know, in, in the past, she would not have been considered a person because she's female, right? And pointing out that whether it's gender or skin color or ethnicity when we pick these criteria to exclude some human beings from getting their human rights that's uh the very definition of a human rights violation and, and for me it was it was a, a short anecdote it was personally interesting because i first came across that human plus x argument when i was doing pro-life outreach with stephanie in florida back in 2013 that was the first time that that i encountered the argument and it changed the way that I talked about those issues because it's way more efficient in conversation to make that point about discrimination. That 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 legal personhood is just a way of discriminating against some human beings. So I, I thought she did a, a good job of bringing that discrimination to the forefront of the debate. 100%. And, and I remember back, yeah, before we had this human plus X, I remember um, similar Florida trips that I went on that relying on sled i i was having 45 minutes or an hour long conversations often trying to do the common ground analogy question through the sled argument as well and yeah the the human plus x relying on people's automatic and intuitive rejection of discrimination um really fast tracks the conversation i think that that, that is something a nugget that that people can definitely pull out and put into their conversations that they're having with their friends and family members or if you're joining cspr teams for activism or or your local pro-life group for activism that's something that you can do to streamline the conversation to make sure that people are realizing that this mechanism has been used before and in some ways i i find it powerful to think that we have finally found tragically the perfect victim Right. In each of those other human rights violations that we've had throughout history, the victims have been able to fight back. Right. That, that this is something that we've discriminated, like you said, on on um, gender and race and skin color and ethnicity and all these kinds of things. The victims of those crimes were always able to fight back. And it was a, a balance of power 
Whereas now with, with abortion, we found a victim that can fight back in no meaningful way, right? They, they can do absolutely nothing to defend themselves and they rely completely on, on people like us to defend them. And so I, I find that an even more, uh, I mean, obviously it's difficult to compare human rights violations to each other, but I think that that's an important factor in this, that we have found an even more vulnerable um, population that we're discriminating against um, now than we have ever found before. And that should um, raise hairs on our on, on our necks even more than than these other atrocities that have happened throughout history that um, we we found this victim that has no ability to defend their life whatsoever. Just thinking about ageism uh, as well uh, to dovetail on something that you had said a little bit earlier, Cam. Um, so Stephanie uh, mentioned several times throughout the debate that uh, Peter Singer was being ageist with some of the arguments that he was giving because he was saying, uh, that you need to have, you know, these certain criteria, you need to have developed to a certain point before you can um, have moral status and have the right not to be killed. But then Peter Singer, uh, in very consistently, I thought, said, well, th like this, this is the criteria, the ability to feel or, or be conscious. Um, and I hold this same criteria for when someone is 50 years old. So if someone is 50 years old and goes into a comatose state, if we can end their life in a way that doesn't cause any pain whatsoever... Uh, then he sees no, no moral quandary with that. Um, so, so in a sense, that's that's a little bit different. We're not just talking about ageism, but one of the things that we mentioned uh, last night, we had a, a long-running WhatsApp chat going with all the, the staff at CCBR across the country as we responded and, and tried to hone in some of the ar hone in on some of the arguments. Um, this really, as you mentioned, is a, a good case of ableism, um, having the ability to do a, a particular function or to, um, uh, yeah, just maybe not do something, but, uh, you know, think or, or desire or feel or you name it. Um, not just the inherent ability uh, as a member of a particular species, but the ability at that particular point. And so someone can, uh, you know, Peter Singer doesn't talk, as you mentioned, Blaze, in terms of uh, rights, human rights or animal rights, um, but using the rights language, someone can cannot have the right not to be killed and then have the right to be killed and then have not the right to be killed throughout life. It fluctuates through life depending on where you are at that particular moment. But one of the things I was wondering about, uh, I know Singer touched on this a little bit, about in, in a sense there's kind of three stages to human life. There's certainly, you know, there's the embryonic stage where uh, arguably that the fetus doesn't feel pain at all or, or that's what we know with the modern technology that we have. Um, and then you had the stage that perhaps you and I are in, uh, all of us at this point, where we most certainly can feel sta feel pain, and there's no argument about that. But then there's this stage of like six months in utero till, I don't know, like a year after birth, where, okay, they can feel pain, but uh, they're not really sentient. They don't have, you know, they don't know that they exist. Uh, they don't desire in the same way that we desire. Could, could one of you articulate a little bit about what Singer's position was then, um, in terms of whether it be abortion or what he called active euthanasia. Yeah, so Peter Singer thinks that pain matters morally, right? That it's morally relevant. We should take it into our moral consideration. But he, uh, and he was clear in, in debate last night and in his uh, textbook, Practical Ethics, under his chapters on taking life, you can see the same thing in more detail. You know, he, he's, he, he thinks pain matters, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong to kill. So he said in the debate last night that for when it comes to late term abortions, after a child can feel pain, he's not opposed to them, 
but he's opposed to them being done without consideration for the child's pain. So he would want, you know, the the procedure to be uh, modified in some way, like for a for an anesthesia to be administered or something like that, right? So he he thinks that 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 pain's morally relevant, um, but if you but but you could kill someone uh, painlessly at that time because they're still not a person and late term abortion. But also that's where we got into infanticide, where he said he would support um, active euthanasia in some cases. That is, you know, intentionally ending the life of a child after birth. Uh, he was hesitant to draw a, uh, a hard line as to um, when a human being becomes a person, which I think is, is, um, is relevant in and of itself. But, you know, he, he said, you know, somewhere around six to nine months after birth or something. So whether you're talking about the third trimester of pregnancy or the first almost year outside the womb, um, he is still, he still thinks it can be permissible to intentionally kill a human being at that age, at that stage, uh, as long as you do it in a painless way. And I, I think that one of the, um, one of the points that, um, Stephanie brought up uh, that was great um, to uh, to challenge that view and to challenge the um, uh, well the problems with that view. She she brought up the case of uh, you know, people like Gabby Gingras, you know, who have a, a, it's a rare condition, but um, congenital insensitivity to pain, right? Where um, even if they pass that typical threshold where most members of our species can feel pain they have a particular condition that doesn't allow them like, like through the nervous system, they can't feel pain at all. Right. And it seems counterintuitive that, you know, killing them would be uh, fine just because they can't feel pain, that that pain is ultimately what morally matters. And I guess Peter Singer goes on, you know, with the consciousness and the desires, but I, I think, I think, you know, um, I'll, I'll often say in conversation, um, I'll, I'll say that, uh, you know, I, I agree that um, pain could make killing worse, but I don't think pain is what makes killing wrong. You know, you can take any, you can take the situation like um, someone with congenital insensitivity to pain, or often for, for quicker analogies in conversation, I, I might say, you know, imagine somebody, you know, were to kill you in a painless way, like a bullet to the brainstem or a lethal injection in your sleep, like, would it still be wrong? Right, like like pain can't be what makes killing wrong. There has to be something else, some other reason why killing is wrong. Mm -hmm. And and that's something that that similarly, when when I'm talking to people on the on street corners and whatnot, I'll I'll bring up this this notion. And I think Stephanie did it as well of of talking about people in hospitals who are in kind of a an induced temporary comatose. Um, whether you're in for major surgery or or have had some kind of accident or whatever it may be, this is somebody who ceases to have the current capacity to have not only the pain but but the the rational conscious thought that peter singer was talking about and i think that she pushed him really well on that that angle and then he had an interesting response in kind of the the hopes and dreams kind of capacity that there has to be some kind of once you have whether the infrastructure once you have experienced um, these hopes and desires and dreams already then you you qualify as a moral character in in one way or another. That, at least that was the way that I was understanding it, because he was kind of saying that if you go to sleep and and you're not going to sleep very well if you're worried that people are going to kill you. I think that that's the way I understood. Yeah, it. and 
I, I wish I could have seen Peter Singer respond to the future like ours argument. So uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. I'm going off an elementary school teacher in my experience, but Don, Don Marquis, um, uh, an atheist pro-life philosopher who's actually debated Peter Singer as well. Peter Singer has said that he thinks that is the most challenging anti-abortion argument. But Don Marquis basically looks around and says, um, well, if we're going to figure out whether or not abortion is immoral, um, first let's set aside abortion. Let's, let's try and figure out why killing is wrong. And he takes a whole bunch of situations of like, you know, a healthy adult human being, um, uh, you know, an infant, uh, a toddler, somebody in, in a temporary coma, like a whole bunch of examples and tries to come up with a consistent reason that we could, that we could say that killing is wrong in those situations that most people agree. And the reason he comes up with is that we're denying people a future like ours, or as Christopher Kayser puts it, uh, a flourishing like ours, kind of packing in some of the Aristotelian stuff for any of the philosophers out there. But, but the point is, you know, a future like ours. And then Marquis turns to the abortion issue and says, well, does a human fetus also have a future like ours? And yes, they do. And therefore, killing them would be immoral. And, and, and I, think, I think Peter Singer finds that argument particularly challenging. Like I think, you know, in, in practice, um, in practice, I will use that argument sometimes uh, in more philosophical conversations. It's complementary to the core human rights argument, like building on top of it. But I think the reason why Peter Singer finds that challenging is it kind of gets at his hopes and desires for the future, right? Like Stephanie was, Stephanie did a good job at trying to get him to articulate the reason why. She used the word random, and I think Peter Singer was right to kind of correct her um, like maybe arbitrary would be a better accusation there. Why? Why does it matter? Like, why does it matter that somebody has experienced um, that desire once in the past before? Right. And, and I, I think that that's the thing that the future like ours argument challenges with Peter Singer is the future of those hopes and desires is still the same, whether or not somebody has yet had the present capacity to have that conscious thought right? They still have that same future. And that is because they are the same kind of being as us, that we're dealing with other human beings, which I think is, is another way of kind of getting at the fundamental reason why we would say that human beings have human rights. There's something valuable about human life. But um, it, it, I, I would have been interested to see how Peter Singer would have responded to that future like ours kind of challenge. Uh, it, it was good that Stephanie, uh, uh, you know, was, was bringing up the, the, the coma and the, um, uh, uh, you know, being, uh, being put under for surgery and, and things like that to challenge him. But that future like ours could have challenged that desires thing even further. Yeah, so, so let's touch on human rights and who gets human rights. One of the things that, um, you know, as we've talked about uh, Peter Singer, you know, uh, valuing pain, the ability to feel pain. And Stephanie Gray Connors mentioned to him that the criteria he was using was completely arbitrary. But then in return, Peter Singer mentioned to Stephanie that her criteria was arbitrary as well. And he, he was saying that because she was just considering the human species, wasn't considering other species, which uh, he considers valuable as well, and uh, and ought to fall into this criteria and, and be, be a part of this conversation. Stephanie, uh, when talking about human rights, brought up the U UN Declaration of Human Rights. She, she uh, touched on a little bit. Uh, from some other organizations, I know the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has a phrase. I can't remember what it is. All lives matter. All lives have equal value, or something like that. And uh, so, touch on that. Um, both documents 
uh, are documents that uh, Peter Singer would agree with. Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, Cam and Blaze, about um, yeah, responding to to that challenge with the UN Declaration of Human Rights or or another you know official document like that. I, I got to be honest, um, I don't I don't know about you, Blaze, but I have such a hard time referencing UN de- um, declarations and whatnot. I feel like it doesn't augment my conversations at all because I have such a hard time with the UN as a a global entity anyways. I, I mean, in many ways, it's a political party. And in many ways, I kind of associate that to being similar to the government of Canada. Um, abortion is legal for all nine months of pregnancy. And and we have a, a child doesn't become a, a person until proceeds fully from the the body of a woman sort of thing. That, that These are legal documents that I'm sure the people who put them together were smart people, but they're politicians. First and foremost, I would say, even if they also have biology degrees and whatnot, they're acting in a political capacity. I have a really hard time relying on these as being meaningful, particularly when you look at how radically pro-abortion the UN and many of their arms and appendages are when they're reaching into third world countries and developing nations and even in first world nations, that kind of thing and pressuring countries to increase abortion access and that kind of thing. I find it really difficult to rely and base any kind of sound argument on these different declarations as well-meaning as they probably were after the Second World War. Um, I, I just feel like it, it's really difficult for us as pro-lifers who are trying to stay rooted in something as standardized and objective as science to rely on a, a political document, legal document, that kind of thing. I, I don't know what your take is on it, but I, I just have a hard time bringing it up in conversation uh, within the context that, that I'm using it. Maybe she brought it up because Harvard has a special appreciation for that kind of administrative um, baggage, in my humble opinion. But but what's your take on that? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, like I, I have mixed feelings on the UN in terms of their support for abortion in many ways. I, I, I overall don't have an, uh, like a, a net negative view of the UN, but I still don't use that in conversation typically to make the moral argument for exactly that same reason, you know, it, it, like it's, it's sort of an appeal to authority. Um, however, I do, um, I do occasionally use the UN argument um, just when people are talking about something like there's uh, some kind of international right to abortion. I like bringing up the Declaration on the Rights of the Child and uh, the All Members of the Human Family thing there, uh, which at least sort of muddies the water and, 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 and makes that uh, like, like it's a little more complicated, actually, you know, the UN has said this about, you know, the, the child deserves protection both before and after birth. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll use it more as a, like, I kind of have that in my back pocket for that, but not to make the central moral argument. But I think what was interesting about the way that Stephanie was using it, what was going on there in terms of, um, uh, you know, both of them claiming that each other's view was arbitrary, is um, what surfaced a little bit in the conversation is what kind of uh, what kind of moral truths are self-evident, right? And, and and I guess what role our moral intuitions have to play. And I was I was reading up a little bit more on on Peter Singer this morning, and um, you know he, his like the foundations of his moral philosophy. Um, he starts with Stephanie actually pointed this out in the intro too. But Peter Singer believes you need to start out with some axiomatic moral truths. That is. Some, some moral truths that like you couldn't argue for, they're just self-evident. And for Peter Singer, he thinks that's things like, you know, impartiality, like what's morally true for you is morally true for other people and stuff like that. And he's going to, and, and he's going to build his moral theory 
based on that. Um, where I think that there might have been some benefit in the way that Stephanie uh, used uh, some of those appeals to appeals to authority, it's not so much in reading in reaching Peter Singer because he doesn't believe in rights and he holds the different um, axiomatic moral truths, but um, in trying to appeal to the audience and challenge them to see if Peter Singer's philosophy matches up to fundamental moral beliefs that they have, like beliefs in human rights, or in particular, like if you look at the, um, you know, American Declaration of Independence, uh, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, Peter Singer doesn't. Peter Singer actually doesn't believe that uh, in, in, in human equality or that people have any rights stemming from it. And I think that I'm not a huge fan of the appeal to an authority because, you know, documents can change their political documents to a certain extent insofar as they're appealing to widely held moral intuitions that people have. I think that gets to the core of what's arbitrary and what's not when it comes to the foundations of these two different worldviews and these two different moral philosophies. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and that does make sense. Just kind of, yeah, relying, like you said, on people's intuition and, and understanding that. And, and I, during the, the, the WhatsApp chat that, um, went long after the debate ended, I found a really interesting, um, take that, that I, I gotta be honest, I don't think about very often in conversations that I'm having. And, and I think that it was either you or Kyle or, or one of the other colleagues who brought up the, the distinction. If you need to make a distinction between the human rights argument and an equality argument, that that can have a meaningful impact in your conversations. If you have somebody like Peter Singer, who is challenging the, the speciesism as just another arbitrary line that 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 might stump some pro-lifers. If you're talking to somebody on the street and they say, okay, well, sure, my, my view is arbitrary. I, I'm 100% picking something that I think is particularly valuable, the, the quintessential attribute of humanity, something like that. But you're being just as arbitrary because you're not consistent either. You're not saying that all lives are valuable. You're just saying that human lives are valuable. Um, he, he gave uh, vegans and vegetarians a shout out a few times in his presentation. And I think that, that he makes a good point, but I think that we can counter that very, very quickly with that equality argument that, that I, whether it's I, I have never needed it in conversation or whether it's that it never sprang to mind, I, I found it super interesting to clarify for the person we're talking to that this isn't simply about humans necessarily being better than every other species, but rather equality within the human species. And I was wondering, Blaze, if you might be able to lay that out a little bit more to help if if somebody does run into that, oh, well, well, am I just being arbitrary by saying that that humans get human rights sort of thing? How do you kind of tweak it a little bit to help still resonate with that person? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so much more I could say on the, on the speciesism thing. And it was interesting at the end of the live stream, um, uh, they stopped the recording, but the live stream kept going a little bit as they were kind of thanking each other. And, you know, Peter Singer had said that uh, he would have found it more challenging to respond to a pro-lifer who was also vegan. And like, I stopped eating meat several years ago and I'm, I'm vegetarian, kind of committed to ethical veganism on the way. And like, I, like I have a lot, like I, I've been engaging with Peter Singer in a lot of different ways over the last few years. But, um, but, but, but I agree that there's something more fundamental. We can cut that out to address the core argument by going to human equality. So, um, this, this equal rights argument is from uh, Josh Brom and the Equal Rights Institute in the States. And um, 
in some ways, they take a different approach to apologetics than we do, and in some ways, they're similar. But I, I, I like to kind of keep an eye on what they're doing because I, I pick up little things here or there that I like to use in conversation. And you know, we usually center our conversations on the human rights argument. Do you believe in human rights? Who gets them? You know, are we dealing with a human being in the pregnancy? Well, you know, human rights are for all human beings. They start when the human being starts, which you know from science is fertilization. That's a quick version of it because I know it's been handled on on a, uh, properly in other podcasts. Um, uh, and I, I prefer that to the equal rights argument. However, when getting to this, like down into the weeds and trying to address in a simple way these more complex uh, philo uh, philosophical arguments or this notion, uh, like if someone says, like if somebody's kind of questioning some of the human rights or just like, well, well why you know, why should it matter that human beings have human rights or something like that? This is where I find the equal rights argument is useful to bring into conversation. In, in a way, it's, it's, it almost kind of gets at uh, like a, a more street apologetics way of, of kind of making the point that Don Marquis does in his future like ours argument. But the equal rights argument, it's a few simple questions, right? So you start by, by asking, um, you know, would you agree that all human adults have an equal right to life. And if you're in conversation with someone, it's usually helpful to make it even more vivid. Like, you know, if I'm on the streets on a campus, I'll, I'll say like, hey, let's set aside abortion for a second. Would you agree that like everybody walking around the street here has an equal right to life? Okay, and most people are gonna say yes, right? Like that's the, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's in the Canadian Char Charter of Rights and Freedom. It's everyone has these fundamental freedoms, right? Um, the next question is, well, doesn't that mean that there's something, that there must be something the same about us, right? Like in other words, if we have an equal right to life, then we all must have something in common that demands we treat each other equally. Like we must have, and we must have that property equally, right? There's, there's gotta be something equal about us to be the basis of equal rights. Third question is, okay, what is it? And then, uh, what the Equal Rights Institute does is they'll wait patiently, uh, let people chew on the question for a bit. Uh, you know, if, if, if they give an answer, they'll engage with it, uh, but, you know, kind of give them a shot at answering the question. And then they'll offer their, their own answer, which is that the one thing that we have in common equally is our humanity, right? That we're all equally human. That's the one thing that doesn't come in degrees. It's an all or nothing kind of thing. Now, um, Peter Singer will make the, the, the species claim, like, well, why are you treating human beings specially? And I'd love to dive into that a little more uh, later, but I, I, I like the way, I, well, I, 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 I used to take Stephanie's uh, answer to respond to this, and she gave an even better one last night than the old one that I was using, which is, you know, like if somebody says um, Black Lives Matter, you know, we don't infer from that that non-black lives don't matter, right? So if we're saying human lives matter, we're not saying that anything necessarily about whether or not other lives matter. We're just saying that at least human lives matter, right? Um, uh, the other way that I've heard her put it before is, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the animal rights question, that's an important debate to have. The debate is whether or not we should uh, like, like currently we treat human beings better than we treat non-human animals. That debate is, should we treat animals better? 
not should we treat humans worse. It's should we give animals rights, not should we take them away from humans, right? So if we're at least talking about uh, human beings, we don't have to make a claim um, about, about non-human animals. As Christopher Kayser puts it, the pro-life position isn't that only human beings are persons, just that every human being is a person, right? So whether we're talking about animals or angels or artificial intelligence or um, aliens, uh, we don't need to stake a claim in their personhood. We're just saying that all human beings deserve human rights, right? So um, uh, we can set aside the kind of speciesism question, but the thing about Peter Singer's philosophy is it can't be used to explain human equality because he bases moral status on things that we have in degrees. As we were saying earlier, uh, as Peter was, uh, as Peter Boss was pointing out earlier in this recording, um, you know, uh, Peter Singer points to things like, uh, you know, consciousness, desires, pleasure, pain, it's functions that we have, they can come and go and we get them in different degrees, right? So um, he can create a intellectually consistent moral philosophy on that basis, but not one that can explain human equality. And he even says, in, he, he said in passing in the debate last night that he felt like, you know, um, uh, human equality or the notion we have equal rights, it might be like useful as a kind of political or legal talking point, but he doesn't actually believe in it philosophically. So the thing is that equal rights argument is really useful when you're getting, uh, when you come up against this philosophy, because, um, somebody might kind of latch on to Peter Singer's philosophy without fully understanding all the implications of it. They might think, oh, he's got like a really smart argument for this, but it's like, okay, but do you believe in human equality? Because you got to pick one. You can't have our moral status be based on something that we all have in degrees, that we all have unequally without abandoning the notion of equal rights of, of human equality. So, I, I, I don't use it as my like opening in a conversation. It's not where I anchor conversations. I prefer the human rights argument for that. But I do love this equal rights argument as a really simple way to challenge those moral philosophies that are inconsistent with the average person's basic moral intuitions, that there's some concept of, of equal rights or equal treatment that, that, that we deserve. Yeah, that's, that's great and really makes it clear as well. I think of the human rights argument and that really uh, gets to some of the human moral intuitions as well, uh, moral intuitions that so many of us have. Um, before we before we conclude this, I have one question um, that has to do with Peter Singer's challenge on ectopic pregnancy. Uh, and I bring this up because uh, the challenge that Peter Singer had is, is something that uh, I've heard both on the streets and at uh, pro-life conferences like Crash Course crash courses and different things like that, where it, during the Q&A, this is one of the questions that's asked. So Peter Singer asked about an ectopic pregnancy, a pregnancy where the, uh, the, the zygote or the embryo implants within the fallopian tube. Uh, and Stephanie Gray gave uh, one of the responses that, that we often give when we're on the streets, uh, compares various uh, types of responses and, and medical procedures that we can do, some of them which directly and intentionally target that human being. Um, and, and others that target uh, the fallopian tube. Uh, but in every case, uh, the, the, the preborn child dies. Uh, and then one of the things that Peter Singer said um, uh, was something along the lines of, well, uh, because you've done the procedure, you are responsible for 
the outcome of that um, of that medical procedure, the outcome being uh, ending the, the ending of that human child's life. Now, that's something I've heard on the streets. It's something uh, a challenge I've heard uh, on uh, during these conferences about the ethical nature of any one of these procedures during an ectopic pregnancy. I wonder if one of you could speak to how you would respond to that if you had that opportunity. Yeah, I, obviously it comes up very frequently in conversations. I, I was talking to somebody at one of our choice gene displays maybe maybe a week or so ago. We're, we're getting snow in, in Calgary here, so we're not doing choice gene quite as frequently because most people still have their winter tires on and people are skating all over the place. But But I was talking to somebody and trying to trying to make a, a very good clarification of what is the goal like you said is it acting directly on the child or is it acting around the child and we have a lack of medical resources and and technology to be able to sustain the life of the child and, and i think stephanie made a very good analogy of that that newborn child running into antarctica sometimes i've actually been making the analogy i think that it works fairly well though it, i'm fairly new in using it of considering a child who's got a very infectious and incurable disease. And, you know, if, if that child stays with the family, stays with the parents, then everybody is going to die. Everyone's going to contract the disease. Everyone's going to die. You can isolate that child from the family in a quarantine situation to protect the family. And that child is still going to die, tragically. Um... And and maybe even quicker, obviously, the, the uh, emotional, mental, personal stress that's going to go into that isolation, quarantine in a hospital, unfamiliar environment, all that kind of stuff may actually hasten their their death because of um, the strain on that child. And yet there's a huge difference between that and shooting that child in the head and throwing them in the dumpster so that nobody else in the family gets sick. I'm sure it's not a perfect analogy, but that's the analogy that I have been using to demonstrate the difference in intentionality um, and the difference in direct action towards that child, I guess. Yeah. And I think part of the thing with Peter Singer is he doesn't believe that intentionality matters as much. He just thinks all the consequences matter. But I think that for the average person on on the street, um, you know, they, they don't hold to like this philosophical utilitarianism, which leads to all these other kind of uh, odd conclusions like the average person on on the street uh can get that kind of difference and i i and i like that 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 kind of analogy you use i haven't had the opportunity to use that on the streets yet but um because it, it it gets at the difference which is what what stephanie was was rightfully uh illustrating the difference between um killing and being unable to save right and what peter singer said is he thinks that we should be responsible for um, for all of the foreseen consequences of our actions, and the and, and um, you know for for kind of uh, deeper philosophical reasons, he rejects the uh, the double effect reasoning, which would be the more formal way that we would make those distinctions um, as 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 pro-lifers. But I think that um, uh, I, I think that there is something that that we can explain um, uh, to people that makes sense about the difference between. Uh, intentionally killing versus being unable to save. Like um, when we're faced with a choice in ectopic pregnancy like that, uh, in any kind of case where we'd use double effect reasoning, um, our options are to do nothing or to do something that's going to have two effects, a good effect that we want and a bad effect that we don't want. And um, the, the question is, you know, how do we make 
uh, decisions in those cases. And I think that it's intuitive for people to be able to understand that like sometimes we're faced with those choices and it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that, that we can't do something that's going to bring about a bad side effect. Like if, if, if one of my kids falls, uh, scrapes their knee and I have to disinfect the cut and it's going to hurt them. Like I don't want to cause them pain, but my option is do nothing. And that cut could become an infected or do something that's going to cause some pain, but also heal the cut. Right. So th there's these kind of situations that we face all throughout life. And I think, um, you know, in the ectopic pregnancy situation, um, they're like, we, we simply do not know how to save the child's life. If we do nothing, the child and the mother are going to die. Yet there is something that we can do, which is simply to remove the child from a situation that would be fatal to both the child and the mother, right? Which saves the mother's life, but we still don't know how to save the child. I think that's very different from uh, being the ones who kill the child. And, uh, and, and I think analogies uh, like the one that you brought up, Cam, of you know a child that needs to be put in quarantine and it might have the unintended side effect of hastening death, uh, but the, what's the alternative? And are we responsible for that? Like, are, like are, are we giving them the disease or is it just a matter that we don't know how to save them? Right? And I think, I think that's, that's what that distinction comes down to. Well, gentlemen, that, uh, that was a very helpful clarification. Thank you for that. We're almost at the hour mark. Um, I know initially in our, uh, in our plan, we were going to be doing like 30 to 35 minute episodes and that never ended up happening. Um, but are there any final comments that either of you would like to share uh, regarding the debate, regarding conversations in the streets or whatever it might be? One thing that, that springs to my mind is just the, the biggest difference that I see between the debate style and the conversational style are the questions. I think that Stephanie made some very, very compelling points, especially in her preliminary arguments and in her rebuttals and that sort of thing. But I, I desperately want to encourage you, the listener, as you're going about the conversations that you're having, to ensure that you're asking questions whenever you possibly can. Yes, there are some times when you need to convey packets of information to clarify the pro-life worldview, to clarify the humanity of the preborn, that kind of thing. But if in doubt, ask a question. Um, that, that isn't the, the format of debate that, that works for Stephanie during this kind of context. But don't take away a lot of the information that Stephanie conveyed, but don't take away the delivery and try to implement that in the conversations you're having, having a, a 10 minute opening remark with your, with your coworker at the lunch table probably isn't going to make for a meaningful conversation, right? And, and so rely on the question, still build the common ground, make the analogies, ask the questions, use the human rights argument, apply a lot of the nuggets, but in continue to engage with the person, draw from them, try to understand where they're coming from. That's kind of my, my biggest takeaway for like what you, how you can apply a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And if I were to add one last thing, I mean, I guess I said some of what I wanted to say about speciesism, the animal rights question and how we can recenter that on, on human rights. But I think for perspective and conversation, when we encounter people uh, on the streets or in our circles, in our communities, um, who bring up the speciesism and the, the veganism kind of argument. Um, <clears throat> you know, for me, Peter Singer, like, like as a pro-lifer, uh, grappling with the question of animal rights, 
Peter Singer was one of the biggest barriers for me because I saw this animal rights view as being uh, uh, like as being involved with abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, assisted suicide, uh, you know, like involving devaluing human life. And I think one of the things that I realized and is that um, is that it doesn't need to be that way. So I'm not advocating for veganism here, but for having effective conversations with vegans, I advocate for a common ground rather than a combat approach, right? So recenter it on human rights. But the thing is, I think when pro-lifers, um, uh, who, when pro-lifers who aren't vegans hear the species and thing, I think we get our defenses up and we think oh, this person's, you know, attacking human rights. They're hostile to human value. Like I need to take down their whole worldview. And I think the reality is that, um, you know, Peter Singer uh, questions why we prioritize human beings and don't care about other species. But he he uh, he trades speciesism for ableism and ageism, right? And you don't have to pick and choose between them, right? We can uh, we can leave open the animal rights question, and we don't have to try and change someone's worldview on non-human animals to make the case against abortion. We can bring it back to uh, to human rights, uh, but also we've got common ground with the average. Uh, with the average person in terms of concern, like the, the, the value for all life, the concern of protecting the vulnerable, maybe even uh, the use of victim photography, right? So um, uh, my old instinct was I hear animal rights. I think Peter Singer, I'm like, I need to take down your whole worldview. My, my new move is you know, like, no, no, you know what? We actually have a lot of common ground. We can, uh, you know, there's, there's this area of debate we can leave open. We can talk about human rights and why do you value life? Why do you think we should protect the vulnerable? And um, don't you agree that ageism and ableism are, are problematic, right? Like that's the direction we can take a conversation. Yeah. One, one thing, just to pick your brain on that, I, I'm sure that we'll do a, a, an entire episode on, on the veganism question. And, and shout out to my uh, friend of ours, Deirdre, up in Edmonton, who was an incredibly consistent um, vegan pro-lifer who came down and did an internship with us, though she didn't necessarily come from the same background that a lot of the other interns came from. She was one of those incredible people. When, when I have conversations with people who are either vegan or um, even even present that argument sometimes the first thing that i do is clarify because most people who i've spoken to who will who will make that argument are not the kinds of vegans like what peter singer is talking about they're they're you shouldn't be allowed to kill any members of the species at all like like i'm sure that peter singer would make the difference between eating chicken and eating chicken eggs caveat there that the the eggs just for those that don't know the eggs that you buy in the grocery store are not fertilized and so there is a an ethical difference there just a clarification i hear that all the time on the street and so the first thing that i ask is trying to understand their ethical worldview on veganism of the example that i would use because i i grew up in victoria and we we did a lot of talk about west coast organisms the california condor this this nearly extinct um, majestic bird that that's in california do you think that it's okay to stomp on California condor eggs? Sure, you can't shoot them out of the sky. You, you can't kill the adults. But do you think that it's wrong to kill not only the newly hatched offspring, but the offspring while still in the egg? Oh, yeah, that, that's obviously wrong. Okay, and so if you protect all members of that species, regardless of their development, from the beginning of their life, why wouldn't you do that for the human species as well? Sometimes I, I try to fast track it that way. 
Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like I, I, I think that approach would be really productive. You know, I mean, okay. If, if chimpanzees deserve rights, should all chimpanzees deserve rights or only some chimpanzees? Right. And like, okay, well maybe we disagree about whether chimpanzees should deserve rights or not, or what kind of rights they should get. But if, if, if we agree that all chimpanzees should get rights, if they're worthy of them, then can't we agree that all human beings should get rights if they're worthy of them? Right. And, and I, I think, I think that the, the, the point that you're bringing up that, um, uh, that I was trying to articulate, um, just because we learn something like, like just because Peter Singer coined the term speciesism doesn't mean that every vegan who uses it is a philosopher, right? The average person that we're concerned about is actually concerned about animal rights. Peter Singer doesn't believe in animal rights, right? So I guess don't confuse Peter Singer's philosophy with what the average person on the street believes if they bring up words like speciesism or if they if they're speaking from a vegan perspective because most of them do believe in human equality they believe in equality for other species as well we have more in common with the average vegan we'll meet on the streets than we might have with peter singer is the point i'm trying to make that's good thank you gentlemen well everyone that is the end of another episode thank you so much for tuning in blaze thanks for joining us for this special episode where you are not just a guest, uh, as you are going to be in, in the one later, although you are a guest, but you're more of a conversation partner, I guess we'll call you. Uh, Glad so. to be a conversation partner. <laughs> yeah, thanks for allowing us to pick your philosophical mind. Well, everyone, uh, don't forget to share this episode and so many others with your friends and your family and your colleagues, whether pro-life or pro-choice. We know that there are pro-choice people listening to the content that we put out. So thank you for that. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think, whoever you might be. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook is where we are. Check out our website as well. Find us on your podcast catcher if you're finding all our episodes on the website. Any last words, Mr. Cameron? Um, just just the, the same challenge that I often give. We, we were encouraged by a good friend of ours in the Lower Mainland in British Columbia to offer more concrete challenges. And so I'll just give that challenge of talk to somebody about abortion. At, at the very least, consider sharing, like Peter said, either this episode or even even sharing Stephanie and um, Peter um, Singer's debate. Start the conversation because we don't save babies if we just think about this behind our own closed doors. We change minds, we save lives by engaging the people around us. It is intimidating. Have one conversation this next week. Go through the common ground analogy question, bring out the human rights argument, and let us know how it goes. Maybe it's a complete flop. Maybe it goes incredibly well and you change somebody's mind. Have the conversation because the, the reason or one of the reasons why Peter Blaves and I are able to have these kind of conversations and whatnot is because we've had a ton of conversations. Between us, I'm sure that we've spoken to tens of thousands of people um, over the last two decades about abortion. You, you build confidence, you build ability through that experience, but you got to start somewhere. So apply these lessons and have a conversation with somebody about abortion. Yeah. And if you want to get involved in some of the things that we are doing at the CCBR uh, or through some local groups that uh, we have connection with and work with, check out our website uh, or CCBR's website and thekilling.ca. Go to the Take Action tab and you could find a whole bunch of options there. So get involved, get into some good conversations and let us know how they went. Uh, and let us know what some challenges are that you faced in those conversations and perhaps we can touch on them in future episodes. Take care, everyone, and uh, we hope you tune in next week. <laughs>